Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's great to reprise on some uh, conversation about China. Uh, I am super happy and grateful for my good friend and former colleague, Nick Lee, uh, who I'll do the brief introduction for him. Uh, he's been at Morgan Creek for a, for a long time and, uh, and runs the China Fund there. But uh, we spent a lot of time on the road. He's a great guy. I am really looking forward to, have, to hearing what he has to say, as well as Stephen. So I'm going to try to get through mine relatively quickly, as always, uh, slides will be available. So uh, let me get up here. All right. OK. Uh, my compliance people will be happy that I'm showing my disclaimer here. These are my opinions. So. Um, a, a, a chart actually that, that Nick and I are, are quite familiar with because it's a favorite of Mark Yusko. But this shows just a really long view on the history of uh, China and India or Chindia, uh, as, as some folks have, have known, really dominated the first millennium. And then after that, the Western world began to dominate uh, in terms of GDP. And this chart, as well as this chart often used for uh, why China in terms of just the tremendous growth of manufacturing that was there. As I mentioned in, um, in Newport, the combination of the China five-year plan for an emphasis on manufacturing, an emphasis to a more consumer-driven, uh, well, I'm sorry, back then it, it was an export-driven uh, economy, plus the currency affordability really led to their global leadership. Uh, back starting you know, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And you can see, here's a chart of the, uh, of the currency. It's, it's inverted relative to the US dollar. Um, so China's currency gets less expensive as we move towards the top of the chart and more expensive as it comes down. So this period of time where, uh, where it went from two to almost nine, uh, really helped tremendously in terms of the, uh, uh, the ability uh, for China to become the low-cost producer and the global manufacturing center. Um, we talked about uh, the deflation uh, that it exported earlier and potentially now, uh, right now, but, but we're going to leave that a little bit later. Here you can see sort of the demonstrated proof of, of what happens uh, when you get a low-cost leader uh, to be the global manufacturing center. Uh, this dark line here are durable goods. And you can see you know, tremendous deflation in the pricing you know, over a very long period of time, specifically you know, due to you know, China and, and just global transportation costs coming down, everything adding up. So where are we going right now? And you know, the forecast for China's GDP has been coming in. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this at, at prior PCI sessions, but the general envelope for the forecast going forward is anywhere between four, almost four and a half percent to six percent. And the latest print that came out just the other day was at 6.2, which was year over year uh, down considerably from the expected value of 7.1 percent. Now there are some basing uh, artifacts with regard to 6.2, but nonetheless, you know, the, the trend has been coming in. And I, I showed this in, in Newport, uh, the PPI uh, for China has just been coming down tremendously. You can see now it's, it's in negative territory 
which portends, uh, you know, continuing deflation, disinflation in China. These charts uh, just sort of came out. The people from, from BCA made a good point in terms of you have to be careful of low figures in last year. So that's why you know, the, the figures look you know, pretty, pretty interesting right now. But if you look at a two-year percentage change, even still, even though the momentum is kind of kicked up just a tad bit in terms of output volume of services and industrials, it's still the trend is somewhat is, is on the is on the downside. And finally, uh, I wanted to note, uh, well, not not kind of, but as far as the numerical charts, uh, the percentage of trade that we do with China has been declining as of late. So this is evidence of, of the reshoring phenomenon coming in. And you can see that you know this this kind of greenish line um, and the uh, and and the red line, uh, Canada and Mexico have sort of perked up a little bit as China has come down. Can I ask you, Bill? Is there any Chinese uh, money in the Mexican numbers? Because there has been they have been investing in Mexico. Good, very good question. I would, um, yeah, don't know. The answer is yes, Mark. Yeah, there is foreign direct investment moving from China to Mexico. Very good. That's why I'm trying to go fast. <laughs> anyway, I want to I want to wind up with with this one slide. It's it's quite busy. You all might have a difficult time looking at the text, but this is all in one Reuters article, and it was just headline after headline after headline of you know. China cuts key lending benchmarks, more stimulus. Uh, PBOC will likely ease, further ease monetary policy. Grim picture of the economy, stimulus policies to be unveiled, disappointing domestic tourism. You don't see these kinds of headlines anywhere else. All, all the other headlines that we see are inflation fighting. But here uh, in, in China, you can see definitely um, much, much the opposite. So we're talking sort of disinflation, deflation, uh, you know, potentially happening. And with, um, with that, I want to turn it over to, to Stephen because he's got some super charts uh, that I really think, you know, highlight some important issues on this. But, but that gives you sort of big picture history and then kind of where some of the numbers are headed right now. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. So, uh, following on with what Bill said, we've had uh, uh, a lot of news about China, a lot of it around the politics of China and uh, meetings recently held by uh, Janet Yellen and uh, Anthony Blinken. And it's really about putting a floor in the deteriorating relationship that we have, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, not a great starting point, um, but it gives you a sense of how uh, fragile and difficult the uh, setup is. You have right now three big issues in China that I think are driving a lot of the negative sentiment. And I, I just wanna say, before I get into those three negatives, China is, uh, it's always been one of those countries that it's easy to have uh, one point of view on when you really need multiple points of view. So when there's all this negative, I think there's a lot of positives and uh, it's easy to get hung up on the headlines, um, but I think they have some structural issues. Um, Weakening demand from global consumers for goods 
as they shift to services has hurt China because their manufacturing system has money being sent from China uh, to these countries through their, through their exporting and manufacturing. And now people are focused on leisure activities as the reopening continues. So I think the shift from goods to services is one of the negatives that's weighing on them. I think the uh, consumer confidence is weak and that's a lot of that's driven by property. We'll show that in a minute. Um, and in spite of the fact that there's really strong savings rates in China, um, you're still having this confidence problem because real estate is such a big part of the economy. We'll show that in a minute. And then business investment's been depressed. And I think it's been depressed for uh, a couple of reasons. One is the crackdown on national champions, Alibaba being the most, most notable one, but it really goes back to um, the trade uh, tariffs war that Trump started um, and it's continued with the worsening geopolitical issues. I think the other thing that's thrown people off is that China didn't reopen the way everyone expected them to. Uh, the focus was on quality growth and stability, not just growth at all costs. And I think that's part of the challenge that the market's having in sorting through some of the differences. But keep in mind, China, for all the negative headlines you're seeing right now, is still projected to be the uh, largest contributor to global growth over the next five years. And you can see from the chart, a very healthy number with India picking up the U.S. Uh, still strong. I suspect these numbers will not be um, as positive uh, for China or for a couple other countries as they are. Um, I think India and the U.S. and some of the exporting nations on commodities will do better. I think the European nations will uh, have a bigger problem. Um, I think China's at an inflection point, and I think it's a really interesting time in the Chinese economy as we think about what's going on right now, and you see the, the list of challenges, it's very similar to the articles that Bill highlighted with deflation picking up, sluggish consumer spending, the property markets are continue to be in crisis, exports continue to decline, youth unemployment hit a new number of 21.3% uh, uh, yesterday. Um, local debt issues, I'm gonna show you a chart on that. Manufacturing is really slowing, and that doesn't get into the longer term demographic issues that they're facing with a, uh, a terrible birth rate on a, on a rapidly aging uh, population. In fact, one of the strategists considers China the world's oldest nursing home for the challenges that they have in terms of their aging. I think one of the misstated or misunderstood shifts that's going on, particularly around the reopening, but it's part of what Bill was talking about of shifting to from industrial economy to a consumer economy, is they're working on their uh, move for, up the value chain and shifting from lowest cost production to innovation-led growth. And I think that's a hard thing for the market to adopt to and adjust to, particularly with some of the challenges for the public market companies that fell on the wrong side of the government there. I think where you're going to see this innovation, and Todd's pointed this out in the past, is in the VC area. Um, but I think the last issue, and it's a major one, is this national security issue is changing global relationships. And as long as the US and China are um, as um, adversarial as they've been recently, I think that's gonna continue to be a problem. But let's look at some of the charts. This shows uh, <clears throat> uh, core inflation and you can see, I'm sorry, yeah, this is core inflation. As you can see that China is way out of, out of step with the rest of the developed world in terms of their uh, level of inflation uh, pressures. Uh, looking much more like uh, even below Japan uh, in recent readings. If you look at where they are on a uh, headline, 
you're really moving to a deflationary mode here. And I think that's one of the uh, challenges that the cumulative effect of uh, some of the policy mistakes that have been made in, internally in China, in my opinion, and also the policy mistakes made by other nations, including the US, are creating some of the, the negative forces here. But I think this is a real issue when the second largest economy is uh, moving that way. We talked about exports, and you can see the chart is a, a kind of a steady decline. Um, and, and that's not a good setup for, for their economy. I think the local government debt problem is one that's getting a lot of press right now. Um, this shows that uh, the majority of the, of the regions have a debt income ratio of over 120%, which makes it a very difficult uh, position for it to be in uh, and for governments to work out of. And one of the challenges is how does China spread the money around that they have to support the system in a way that's most effective and still deal with uh, this problem, which is, continues to grow. And it's not just their domestic debt that's a problem. You know, you have 78, uh, $77 billion of Belt and Road debt um, that has either been restructured or renegotiated in the last uh, uh, couple of years, in the last uh, really two years. And I think this problem is um, what started out as a real positive for China, giving the world an alternative to the Western and US-led uh, approach to governing and, and governance. Um, gave them an alternative, particularly for more of the authoritarian governments uh, that gave them a, a kind of a runway and, a, and an ally. And now once you start taking uh, this debt problem hasn't worked out for either side. It's a problem for China and it's a problem for the borrowers as well. So I think that continues to be a problem. I think the youth unemployment is one of the bigger structural issues that China is going to face for some time. When you move up, and we've talked about this, um, the report yesterday was almost uh, a percent higher than it was uh, two months ago. So the June report was at 21.3. The uh, April, I think, was 20.4. Um, so a pretty significant move in a very short period of time. And China's graduating a, you know, about 11 million college students a year. And recently, President Xi suggested when there was uh, concern about the youth unemployment rate, um, and that they don't have the jobs they were looking for, particularly as they moved up market, um, that they should go work in the factories and eat bitterness. Um, that's not exactly a motivating factor for young people to get them moving, but it is a sign of the challenges, I think, that are facing the young people there. So that's the negatives on it, and they're plenty, but you got to keep in mind that China remains one of the most attractive uh, consumer markets in the world. They have a middle class that's growing and continues to grow. It's the uh, middle class. It's larger than the population of the U.S. Um, so it's and will continue to grow there. I think the VC market um, uh, should remain robust because of the uh, skills and knowledge level and capital that's available in the country. Um, but I think if you want to succeed, you should avoid competing with China in the areas that they've identified as strategically vital industries from their plan or work with them in their plans. Um, you want to invest in their national champions and keep in mind that their clean energy, uh, they are one of the leaders in that. Their resources around the clean energy transition around uh, uh, high-end electronics is uh, really strong and that's gonna to continue to be both a benefit and a, and a point of friction for the uh, system. So I think there are a number of opportunities inside of China that you can benefit from but I also think the other side of the coin is uh, the policies put in place by governments, mainly 
the U.S. with their IRA program and other programs, and even some of the programs China is doing inside their five-year plans, really identify for global investors opportunities in each uh, uh, society that they can invest in, each market that they can invest in and succeed in. Um, but you also have to keep in mind, um, China is a leader in patent applications. And I know uh, Janam will tell us that patent applications are only part of the thing. You need good patents, not just an, a lot of them. And they need to be effective and they need to be adopted and used. But uh, I think with the uh, skill levels and the quality of uh, education and the quality of students in China and the innovation that's always been a part of their culture, I think this is something you can't ignore. And when you go into the advanced areas of technology, China has led the patent applications in most of the major categories uh, for some time. So with all the challenges, there are many opportunities. You can't write it off. It goes through cycles and they're in one of those cycles where they're dealing with some uh, growth pains as many systems do. I would argue that the US is doing the same thing right now. Um, so the question that's being asked now for the first time in a while is, does China reach number one or do they head for a Japan uh, like Malaysia? And I would suggest that I wouldn't count on China going to a Japan like number. I think the uh, resources and assets of the nation are real and, and uh, strong. I think they have the financial wherewithal in the near term to work through their debt issues and, uh, and you'll see big opportunities. But the market is being defined uh, for you is where you want to invest. And I think uh, you'll hear from Nick some of the opportunities that he sees. So uh, let me stop there and get, get us over to Nick. Just a quick comment. I did post it in the chat, Stephen. The, the sharp rise in the curve in the Chinese patents corresponds to the year that the Chinese government required everyone from that point on to file in China, regardless of where they live. They have to file in China first. On the, on the other hand of that, they have had a lot of success for a lot of years of moving up the uh, rankings in the different categories for their quality of their patents. So it's a, there is a numbers game that you can't be misled on, but that's part of the problem with China, right? You can't yeah, really it's the numbers. Yeah, fair point. And that means even if you're in a company, if there's one Chinese applicant, you have to file in China first. Thank you. Nick? All right, thank you. Um, give me one second while I try to share screen here. Uh, hang on. Nick, is it the same presentation? That uh, no, I, I did some minor edits. Give me one second. Um, <clears throat> hang on. Bill, Bill, do you want, while he's looking, do you want to give an introduction to Nick a bit? I'll see Bill though. I, I, I almost I almost owed everybody a beer here. <laughs> so <clears throat> yeah, Nick, Nick and I were colleagues at, at Morgan Creek. Um, Nick has been there uh, for a golly Nick, has it been like almost 20 years, uh, something close to that. 
and uh, was part of the China team initially, uh, and then uh, has assumed the responsibilities for their, their China fund, which is a, a hybrid fund of funds uh, plus, uh, plus direct investments, and has been there you know, forever. And really a, a super guy. And now that we've got the slides up, I can uh, I can I can hand it back. But I I know I know very few people other than Nick uh, who can speak as well uh, to the situation there. Well, thank you so much, Bill. And apologies on that uh, sort of tech problem. Um, my laptop was destroyed more than I thought. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> thank you for um, uh, for for the invite and and for taking uh, the time. Maybe uh, you know, there's a lot of data that was obviously very well provided, um, you know, in the in the prior presentation. So um, maybe you know, might be helpful if I sort of try to help sort of fit all of that in sort of a framework uh, that I used to think, uh, you know, when I think about China. And so three things, uh, you know, tried to cover today. Um, one is to try to get to sort of the heart of the issue, um, and you know, it was mentioned, you know, uh, earlier. I think the heart of the issue is China's undergoing a, a tremendous economic transition, and we'll kind of talk about uh, that a little bit more. And that sort of flows into all of the data that you're, all, you know, the challenging data that you're seeing, not only internally in terms of unemployment, uh, growth challenges, but also externally in terms of, you know, geopolitical challenge, you know, uh, tensions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then second point, you know, we, we think given, uh, you know, have the same view, uh, but, you know, think given sort of the resources that China has, and the track record that that it's uh, displayed over the you know last couple of decades, um, that it will be successful uh, in 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 this transition, and then you know flowing from that, uh, you know if you, you believe that they're going to be successful, then you know where where are the opportunities? Obviously, investing behind that that transition. Um, so, right. So um, <clears throat> if you go back in history and look at the development of all of the major industrialized countries, right? So UK, US, Japan, all of them go through very, very similar, uh, you know, three stages. So the first is uh, mass production of, you know, low tech goods, right? So if you look at how textiles industry migrated from UK to US to Japan to China, and then now to India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, et cetera, um, that's the natural workings of, of, of the economy. Um, step one, right? So step two is infrastructure building. Right. So once you have all of these goods that you're mass producing, you have to have, you know, good logistics. You have to have all the physical infrastructure, um, you know, the financial infrastructure to, to allow that to um, to allow the, the, the country that's doing that production to become globally competitive. Um, and so you think about sort of, you know, the in the UK, obviously, the invention of the, the steam engines pervading every industry, uh, obviously also thinking through, you know, the, the railroad barons in the US post-war reconstruction in, in Japan, and obviously all the stuff that China has, has, been, has been building. Um, uh, step, you know, obviously then step two, right? Or step 1.5. Um, and then on that basis, you move on to the last uh, sort of loop or the last iteration of, of the industrial revolution, which is mass production of the means of mass production. So all the tools, all the equipment, machinery, um, both the software and the hardware that the country domestically is capable of producing to allow them to close the entire loop of, uh, of that uh, industrial, uh, industrialization. Um, 
so China has completed, um, you can see China has completed the first two steps um, on a scale that the world has never seen before, right? So it obviously is, is the factory of the world by a huge margin uh, today um, in terms of infrastructure. You know, it's an interesting stat. China used uh, more cement in three years between 2011 and 2013 than the US used in the entire 20th century. Um, so everything that China does because of its scale, uh, you know, comes, you know, uh, big, right? And so where we are today, I think in China is we're at this last stage of the, the development. Um, so at, you know, Industrial Revolution 2.0, it's in the beginnings of trying to innovate to control, you know, the key technologies that allow its continued industrialization. Um, and so now up until uh, today, right, stage one and stage two, so mass production and infrastructure, um, China could do this, you know, by, simply by importing uh, foreign technology and equipment as most countries have done uh, before. Um, but then uh, at a certain point, past a certain point, which is where China is today, uh, you know, the country will be forced to upgrade its economy to survive um, after successfully completing one and two. And this is true of every country that has walked this path. And, you know, it's, it's a natural evolution. And, and the reason is, this is a bit of a busy chart, but um, the reason is uh, the standards of living, once, you know, standards of living for China has risen significantly, right? So people live longer, uh, you know, infant mortality drops. So, you know, irregardless of the one-child policy, it's just becoming too expensive um, to have children. Um, so, uh, you know, fertility as, as a result drops. You, you see this in all developing countries, population ages, right? Um, uh, the youth have better education. They have higher expectations on jobs. So they don't want to do blue collar labor, wages rise, you know, low tech jobs get outsourced. And so if the country tries to remain at, you know, the lower sort of tech level, you know, eventually you run out of steam and they have no choice but to upgrade. Okay, then now if, if you try to upgrade, you run into this, this big problem, right? So the old framework was China was importing all of this advanced, uh, you know, um, capital goods from, uh, you know, developed countries to manufacture, assemble low end products. And now China's innovating on its own machines and technologies and all of these high tech sectors. Um, so if you look at Japan in the 1980s, had a similar uh, issue uh, in that, you know, it moved so quickly in semiconductors that it, it put Intel out of business into DRAM space. And, and this is a product that Intel had invented. Um, so obviously the, 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 the reaction was that, you know, there would be export restrictions and, um, you know, uh, appreciation of the yen. Um, it was appreciated 50% in, in two years. Um, to, to sort of reset, uh, you know, um, sort of the, the rules of trade, right? Um, so then if you look internally, um, you know, as, as you know, uh, speakers have, have mentioned um, earlier as well, this transition uh, from this, you know, for, for this economy has also been extremely painful. So the old playbook of infrastructure building, um, it's almost formulaic, right? So the, the way it works, and the reason why we have all these local government debt problems, right? So local government zones a piece of land, uh, puts debt on top of it uh, to build it up and then use that to attract new businesses, you know, uh, issuing sort of tax incentives, subsidized rents, trying to move new industry into that uh, plot of uh, development. And then at the same time, they'll also invite these property developers to build residential units around these areas 
so that you know when when the workers move in, um, you know they they can have homes to buy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all of this was built on debt, um, or at least a, a very big piece of debt, right? Um, now this model, uh, given China's already you know relatively built up, doesn't work anymore, or it doesn't work as well anymore. And so the central government's trying to unwind all of this, and the problem is, um, uh, you know, hence hence we've seen you know over the last couple of years like you know pretty hard. Uh, policies against sort of real estate infrastructure building property etc um and because all of this or a lot of this was financed at the local government level therefore you're seeing all these debt challenges uh what about sort of youth youth unemployment right so um you know to give you a stat like i'm, I'm renovating my my home now in shanghai the average uh home builder uh in china is 50 years old five zero right so this is not a job that you know can be can yet be automated at least in any efficient way. So it's you know still still requires people to to, to do that. Um, but but no one wants you know none of the graduates want to do it right. So there's a huge shortage of uh, of, of labor in, in this space. It's the same you know with with a, whole, a lot of other blue collar work as well, plumbers, um, nannies, you know etc. So it's not that there are no jobs in China. It's just that the, the youth, because they're you know well educated and you know they're aspiring for for you know so-called you know uh, better life um, or you know the different life, uh, they're not interested in 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 these jobs you know of of you know the old economy. Um, and so it'll take time uh, you know for this economic restructuring uh, to create the jobs that are required to you know to to meet. Um, the, the demand from all of these educated young people. And so given this, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, um, you know, GDP growth is no longer guaranteed, you know, quote unquote guaranteed, like, we, you know, trying to invest a lot in R&D. It's not the same as investing in debt. You invest in debt, you kind of know it's a mathematical formula, roughly, you know how much GDP you're going to create. Invest in R&D may work, it may not work, you don't know. Um, and so given this, given the fact that, um, you know, you know, the, the jobs are not there for, for the young people who want it. Um, consumer confidence is going to, you know, has obviously gone through um, uh, really uh, difficult times. Uh, and so, and so I think, I think if, I, I think, you know, this is also normal uh, for, for a country in this stage. If you look at where Japan was going through um, in its third stage of industri industrialization from the 1980s to the uh, 88, uh, sort of just before everything sort of fell through, um, and they made their you know significant advancements in in auto technology and semiconductor technology. Growth in that period of time was four, you know, roughly four percent annualized. Um, you know China's target obviously a little bit higher than that, but you know falling within that ballpark is not unrealistic. And it's actually I think it's a it's a pretty you know if they actually manage to hit it, it's actually pretty good just given the scale of China so much bigger. Um, but I think the challenge is, uh, you know, that it will take time um, for everyone really to get a handle of this, uh, of this sort of new China and this period of, of Chinese transition um, before uh, confidence comes back. Um, you know, just a quick, because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about exports. So just to sort of put it a little bit in perspective, um, if you look at uh, merchandise uh, sort of trade, trade balances, right? So, um, you know, in, in the last three, four years through COVID, China literally was producing almost everything, uh, you know, for, 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 for the whole world, because most other economies, um, you know, were shut down. 
And so from 2021, uh, you know, their sort of merchandise trade balances hit record amounts and it's been hitting record amounts basically every year, uh, you know, for the, for the following year since. Um, so, you know, it, it, obviously COVID was a bit of a, an outlier um, in terms of now things are sort of back to normal. Um, a lot of it would probably sort of, you know, fall back to what is, what is a more realistic mean. Um, so I think that's, that's one piece um, dropping, you know, 10, 20, 30% given the huge rise is not uh, uh, um, unreasonable. Um, the second piece is the, the, the type of um, customers that they're trying to get, um, it, you know, as they're shifting their economy. Um, you can see, I think this is, this just shows sort of, the, you know, the chart below um, China exports market diversification, um, uh, you know, used to be, you know, before COVID, um, you know, EU was number one, um, uh, sort of, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm talking about sort of total trade. Um, this just shows exports. Uh, today, um, you know, ASEAN has uh, gained basically that crown. Um, it's, it's number one, EU is number two, US is number three. Um, and then they're also building, trying to build a lot of networks with, with uh, other sort of belt and road countries in terms of uh, the exports as well. Um, so I, I think they're trying to change the composition of, of their customers um, to, to make it more balanced. Uh, so that's one thing that, uh, you know, that, that, that is happening. Uh, if you look at the, the chart on the right, um, the other thing that is happening is the composition of the stuff that they're trading. So it used to be, um, you know, China was obviously, you know, many, many years ago, people think of China as sort of exports of low end, um, you know, textiles, clothing, toys, et cetera, um, even phones. And that's really changed um, uh, over time. Uh, today, you know, the vast majority of the stuff that, you know, the Chinese are exporting, you know, are, you know, high tech stuff in the EV, clean energy, et cetera. Um, you know, an interesting stat, uh, this year, uh, China actually um, overtook Japan to become the largest exporter of vehicles in the world. Um, so this, you know, this, this is, you know, it's a big deal. Uh, uh, obviously, for uh, for China to actually break um, into that into that auto market, um, you know, after struggling for you know decades, um, so there's a lot of change that is happening, um, and I think a lot of a lot of it is sort of uh, I would say deliberate um, in terms of not trying to um, you know uh, push for too much or you know uh, um, given given sort of where 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 uh, where things are. Um, then uh, very quickly, I'll kind of walk through why we think China uh, has a chance to be successful. And really, I think it boils down to scale um, and scale. Uh, there's two things, scale in terms of supply chains and scale in terms of markets. Um, so if you look at, you know, each uh, sort of uh, stage of that uh, evolution, um, you know, industry 1.0, it was all about, you know, do you have the labor? And China has that in spades, right? So, so therefore they were, you know, in hindsight, they, you know, it was almost inevitable that they would be successful. Um, if you look at sort of 1.5, uh, you know, the competitive advantage for China um, was the fact that it, it owned all of the land and all of the resources. So they could just, you know, take over the land and say, this is going to be a road that is going to be a hospital, that's going to be a port. Um, and they also owned all of the, uh, pretty much all of the people's deposits and savings. 
um, you know, in, in, in the big banks. Um, so they said, you know, you know, we'll, we'll get the banks to lend and, and loan you to build that road or that bridge or whatever. Um, and, you know, that has continued to this day, although, you know, what used to be building roads and bridges and highways is now building 5G base stations and, um, uh, you know, different types of uh, digital uh, sort of infrastructure, um, you know, clean tech energy storage solutions, et cetera. Um, and so we think given the uh, relentless sort of investments in cost down infrastructure that uh, China will continue to have, uh, you know, significant advantages um, in terms of, uh, you know, distribution um, uh, and, and, and things like that. Um, and then going forward to 2.0, um, you know, one of the reasons uh, why I feel a little bit, I, I won't say sanguine, but, um, you know, uh, a bit more optimistic about sort of this, you know, quote unquote, unemployment number, which which could potentially, you know, if it gets too big too fast, uh, it will be a huge problem. But China has always been a big believer in, you know, build it first and they will come. And so if you look at sort of, you know, the way they did with infrastructure, for many, many years, people were saying, you know, they're building these cities and ghost cities and uh, you know, sort of bridges to nowhere, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and even some, you know, talking about sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, the Belt and Road, obviously there, there, there are lots of issues and there are, you know, big bubbles as well, potentially. Um, and interestingly, one of the biggest bubbles of all, if you go back and read, there's this book, uh, very interesting book um, uh, uh, that was written about uh, the great race and, and in it, it, it talked about uh, the, the race for EVs. Uh, this book, I think, came out in 2012 or 13, 15, 16, something around that area, around that time, time frame. And they were talking about the, uh, you know, China versus uh, Japan versus the US, three countries that were competing um, to try to dominate, uh, you know, EVs. Um, and the conclusion of the book was China was putting tons of money that was going into zombie, you know, projects and, you know, no one, you know, a lot of corruption and, uh, you know, investments that, you know, that, that no one kind of knew where all this money was flowing to. And so it was, you know, it's just a big waste and, um, you know, they'll probably end up just kind of losing out um, and, you know, wasting all these resources. Obviously now in hindsight, um, you know, China basically leads uh, the world in EVs. And so I think part of, um, if it's sort of long way to come back to this, but if you look at sort of the um, the infrastructure that they're building for you know this next area or this next stage of, of of industry development, you need a lot of STEM graduates. You need you know engineers, scientists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and China, you know, I think has just decided, look, we're just going to have you know we're just going to have volume, um, and we'll see kind of what comes out of it. Uh, and so the, the you know the the hardware um, you know the people are all there um, and you know next couple of years we'll just have to see if we're able to create enough jobs and if these guys could be entrepreneurial enough to create or help China you know push China into that next wave of um, of, of growth. Uh, and so there is a proven um, sort of uh, book uh, you know to or method to this madness um, of how China actually utilizes its scale uh, to capture industry. Um, and so, you know, if you look at sort of the top here, uh, basically all of these players, uh, you know, Apple, Roche, International, Tesla, they all come to China because um, markets are large, but also because the quality of the workforce 
um, you know, and the scale and the cost, um, you know, all of those things is, is very strong. Um, and so the moment they come in, um, what happens is, you know, uh, obviously, you know, they dominate the market, they build the market. Uh, but then very quickly, um, after the supply chain and the ecosystem is somewhat developed, you immediately have, you know, the so-called national champions coming in, right? So uh, you'll have, you know, for example, the phone, Oppo, Vivo, Huawei, um, Xiaomi, um, you know, in, in EVs, Neo, um, you know, Li Auto, BYD, uh, Xiaopeng, uh, you know, a ton of these guys coming in. And they typically start at the, you know, basically leveraging off the entire ecosystem that's already there. Um, and they typically start, you know, at the lower end of the market, um, you know, uh, you know, to, to be a little bit differentiated. But then over time, you know, uh, you know, that's that's sort of the bottom and the largest piece of the pyramid. Over time, they'll then move up um, to compete, um, you know, uh, internationally. Um, and so obviously in the phone industry now, you can see, uh, you know, even though Apple's still the largest, uh, at one point, uh, sort of before the sanctions, uh, you know, Huawei did actually take the top spot globally. Um, but even with uh, sort of Huawei now being down, um, you know, China's still, you know, uh, a very large piece of the, 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 the global industry in terms of uh, OEM. Uh, Tesla, obviously, they're now um, uh, number one. Uh, but in China, domestically, uh, BYD, I think, has actually uh, overtaken Tesla in terms of number of cars sold. Um, and the Neo and Xiaopeng and all these other uh, companies are now actually just starting uh, international sales this year. So we'll see how that uh, that evolves. Um, so this is a, you know, this is, the, China has, has been able to do this across multiple industries. I mean, this is in the, uh, some of the industries we talked about, but it's also true in high-speed rail, um, you know, and, and, and a few other uh, choice sectors as well. Uh, so what if um, MNCs decide not to come to China? Well, um, so you can see uh, <clears throat> this is Tesla. In 2019, um, you know, Tesla was at the, at the cusp of going under. Um, you know, they had built their factory in the, in, in the U.S., in California. Um, they weren't able to, to mass produce their cars in a cost-efficient manner. Um, and, uh, you know, Elon Musk uh, is on the record saying he was a couple months away from, from basically going broke. Um, uh, you know, in swooped China, uh, you know, uh, Shanghai government, actually the premier of China, Li Xiang, struck a deal with, uh, with Elon Musk, um, you know, provided subsidies um, to build out the entire factory, gave him, you know, uh, you know tax incentives, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, opened up the entire market to, to, uh, to Tesla. And you can see like, you know, obviously, uh, you know, now um, China in less than four or five years, uh, China now is the biggest uh, sort of um, uh, factory in terms of, of, of number of productions, like 60% of all, all cars of Tesla uh, that is being sold globally um, is produced in China. Um, you know, the entire supply chain, uh, it, you know, 95%, 96%, of um, Tesla supply chain is is in China, um, so you can see like uh, you know without without China um, you know there would be big challenges uh, potentially you know for a company like Tesla and even for Apple um, you know recently uh, you know Cook uh, Tim Cook was talking about um, you know his his next sort of range of products would be VR and AR sets um, <clears throat> uh, and you know. There's a lot of talk about them going to India, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most high-end uh, cutting-edge stuff, um, it, it's all still 
uh, about China. Um, so I think you know, given given the scale, um, it's a it's a difficult market, obviously, to miss, um, and uh, you know, it's difficult for a lot of these multinationals to get out of this uh, system. Um, but once they get into the system, um, you know, uh, you know, they they build up this ecosystem for China, and then you have these national uh, sort of uh, champions sort of rise from there. Um, so, so, so that's sort of, uh, you know, the, the thought. And then, so if that's the case, if we think that, um, you know, China would be successful in making the leap um, towards upgrading its economy, uh, being more self-reliant, uh, then how do we play? Um, and really the, the, the solution here is just, you know, uh, similar to what, uh, you know, the previous speaker had, had, uh, had mentioned, just invest alongside what they, they tell you, um, you know, they, they, they want to achieve if you think they're going to be successful. Um, so I think the two big themes, one is to help uh, or not help, but to basically invest in technologies that allow China to maintain its technologic, uh, its cost advantages. Um, so we only invest in stuff that is cost down. Um, so that's one piece. The second piece is um, invest in technologies that allow China to be um, to realize self-sufficiency. Um, so if you look across each of these, uh, you know, again, different um, stages, right? Uh, you know, we invest basically in the solutions that allow China to maintain its status quo. Um, so labor-intensive manufacturing, um, you know, make it less labor-intensive um, is, is, is basically the idea. Invest in labor productivity um, things. Uh, not so much enterprise software; it's there, but you know, for a variety of reasons, we've we've not really touched this. But robotics and industry uh, AI, um, big focus areas uh, for what we we think there are opportunities in. Um, within sort of physical and digital digital energy infrastructure, um, you know, I, I, there's there's a lot of uh, opportunities to digitize, um, you know, China's supply chains, um, logistics, uh, automate. Uh, a lot of the things in, in, in logistics uh, within energy, um, you know, new energy, clean energy, uh, China leads the world. Um, there's a lot to do around, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, better mousetraps in terms of generations and, and, and storage. Uh, and then, um, you know, for the for the last piece, uh, uh, basically a big piece of it is import substitution, um, investing in the domestic, um, you know, technologies in, you know, Biotechnology, semiconductors, equipment, specialty chemicals, etc. Um, we do this basically with strategics. Um, so everyone that we, or most of the managers that we invest, have very very strong linkages um, to the domestic leaders um, uh, in each of these spaces because the idea is that we want to partner with them to bring three things: so technology, talent or customers to China. Um, and so, so that's basically the idea. Uh, and you know, the last slide, I'll just kind of run through very quickly a couple of examples of what, what, what we've done and where we think the opportunity is. Um, so figure out like the first step, obviously figure out the gaps, um, what does China lack, and then go find out who has the resources to be able to plug those gaps. Um, so we give like examples of you know, two um, sectors. One is in the life science area. Uh, biologics, for example, this company, um, InnoForce, biologics is a, uh, you know, has been, has been huge. There's been tons of money that's poured into biologic, um, you know, drug discovery um, and development in China over the last, you know, five, six years. 
um, but there has there has been very uh, there has been a lack of a manufacturing ecosystem to bring all of these drugs you know uh, to 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 the public to reality. Um, and so you know our manager basically went to Thermo Fisher, um, which is one of the biggest biologics manufacturing uh, sort of companies in the world, um, and said, "Look, uh, we want to build a." you know, a bio, bio manufacturing facility in China, will you do it with us? And so Thermo Fisher came in, um, basically gave us, the, uh, you know, their, their international, their blueprints to build an international GMP facility. Um, and they also opened up their customer base. Um, so these are all international big pharma. And our manager provided uh, basically the local execution, right? So, um, you know, gov local government li liaison, you know, getting all of the subsidies, um, uh, the tax incentives, et cetera, all of those things. Um, and then, you know, the, the local hiring, bringing uh, sort of bridging in talent. Um, you know, this, this facility was built actually through COVID, um, throughout COVID. So we were, we're up and running in two years. Um, everything's sort of up. And now, uh, you know, the company is already uh, revenue positive. Um, because we did it with a strategic, you go in, at the, you know, you go in at the same price as the strategic, basically. So it's just whatever, whatever money you've spent building the, the facility um, at, at cost. Um, so, you know, that's one example. I'll give you also an example on the advanced manufacturing space. Um, so we work with a group, uh, you know, uh, NEO. Um, they're one of the largest, um, you know, car, uh, EV uh, car manufacturers in China. And NEO believes in the autonomous driving, I guess, as most you know, EV car manufacturers do these days. Um, and so they believe that, but, but you know, the difference is they believe that LiDAR is necessary um, to realize this vision. So for NEO, uh, you know, for them, this is a mission sort of critical uh, sort of uh, piece of uh, hardware. And so they decided to go and incubate a company um, that basically produces these LiDARs. Uh, so this company, <clears throat> it's about five years old now. Uh, last year was the first year of uh, commercialization of their LIDARs. Um, they printed, you know, they, they, they manufactured 70,000 units. Um, this year probably will uh, easily double, double if not uh, more than that. And every LIDAR that they produce is basically packaged and sold with a Neo car. Um, and again, because this is an incubation with a strategic, you go in, you know, pretty much at the entry level, you know, the, the, the very base valuation. Um, and, you know, given NEO has enough heft and scale, um, today, you know, just after one year of commercialization, this is the biggest LiDAR company in the world, um, auto-grade LiDAR company in the world that has reached mass, mass, uh, mass production. Um, so, uh, you know, the idea is, you know, uh, we see a lot of these types of opportunities working with um, these strategics, uh, you know, in areas that China desperately sort of needs um, as it sort of transforms its economy, um, you know, from, uh, from, from, you know, 1.5 infrastructure to 2.0 um, high tech. Um, so I'll just kind of end there and uh, thank you for Thank listening. you, Nick. That was great. Thank you, everybody. Bill, Stephen, Nick, three musketeers here. Well, well done. So questions, comments? I know there are questions. Um, I've got a quick question for the group. Great presentation. To, to what degree is there a, a 
negative investor sentiment towards China out there, just from an institutional perspective in the capital markets? Is there is there a, a noticeable level of distrust towards China on any level in terms of parking money there? You're speaking from an American perspective, Andrew? Yes. Well, I guess globally, but starting with America, sure. Maybe, maybe Nick, I know, Bill, you have to leave soon, but Nick, you want to hit that? Um, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, do you mean it from a China perspective or is there concern around, you know, about sort of confiscation potentially of assets or? Uh, just, I guess from a macro perspective, doing, doing business with China, uh, we'll start from an American perspective. Do you face, do you see negative investor sentiment out there towards China relative to other places to park money around the world? Yes, um, there is a lot of uh, negative sentiment, um, particularly, I guess, uh, you know, from more developed uh, economies. So Japan, South Korea, the US, Europe. Um, it's obviously a very different story when you go to sort of the global south, um, you know, Middle East, uh, you know, um, Southeast Asia, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's also because of uh, geopolitics. Um, frankly, uh, right? I think there are multiple poles that are being developed. And so um, you're either, you know, there, there is a narrative trying to be pushed that you're either with us or, 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 or not. Um, and so I think that that level has, has, has made it difficult. Um, but I would say from the China perspective, uh, if you look at, you know, um, uh, you know, China has been very open or has, you know, has been trying to be as open as possible towards uh, foreign investment. They need the money, um, frankly. You know, they, they blew a lot of money uh, doing a lot of uh, interesting things in COVID. Um, for example, when I was in Shanghai, you probably also read this in the, in the papers, but literally every two days we would need to be tested for COVID. Um, so local governments are, you know, now, um, you know, in need of a lot of capital. Uh, and so if you look at, you know, everything that the the more challenge, if you look at sort of the track record of what China has done in the face of um, sanctions, uh, every new challenge, uh, you know, that 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 China has has received in terms of additional sanctions, etc., um, you know, they've actually opened up the economy even more. So if you look at their foreign direct investment, uh, you know, there's a restriction list of how many, you know, the, the types of industries that foreigners are not able to to be majority investors and or even touch. And that list has shrunk, um, you know, very, very uh, consistently, um, you know, over the last, you know, decade. Um, you know, every year they remove, you know, five, 10, 15 uh, sort of sectors uh, from that list. Um, so I think the, the so far, the, the Chinese um, uh, uh, sort of, you know, ha has been pretty open, but the, the reality is that, you know, um, it is a challenging environment today. Nick, yes. we, just, we have a couple of questions, but Bill, do you, did you want us to make a final word before you jump? Yes, yeah, so I've, uh, I've got an internal call, so I'll have to do it. Uh, kudos to my two partners on, on the panel here. I think one of the things that, that Nick points out is, is just there is that huge segment of the population that is the dynamism of, of China. And lately, you know, it hasn't been as, as prominent as it was pre-COVID. But if, if there is an engine that's going to propel China, that's, what's, that's the promise that's right there. So you really have to 
you have to think about it in, in two layers. There's the dynamism of that segment of China, and then there's the government policies and things like that. And I think that you have to hold those two intention um, in order to understand you know, the, the, the whole picture in terms of what's going on. And I'll, I'll, leave, it, I'll leave it there for my colleagues to, to sort that one out. But thanks, thanks everyone.